Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you are listening to episode number 29. Today I'm joined by Jeff Sturgis of Whitetail Habitat Solutions, and this episode is part one of a two-part discussion with Jeff as there's a lot of great information for him to share and cover. Today we're discussing the similarities and differences between strategies for targeting mature bucks on private and public lands, and we've also got a big show reveal today you won't want to miss, so tune in. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and today we have a big show in store for you. I'm pretty stoked uh, for today's show. Well, we have a uh, Our guest today is Jeff Sturgis, which I'm sure a lot of you out there listening probably know who, who Jeff is. Um, Jeff Sturgis has the Whitetail Habitat Solutions website, uh, consulting company. He's written a bunch of books. He's written a bunch of articles. He's done a bunch of videos. Um, really knows his stuff when it comes to you know targeting uh, mature bucks and of course managing uh, habitat for for mature bucks and we had a lengthy conversation with him today's as I mentioned in the upfront um, is really going to be focused around targeting mature bucks on public and private land and how things are similar in some instances and how things are, I guess, at times uh, different and what those differences are. Um, really great conversation. There will actually be a part two, as I mentioned in the upfront of uh, this podcast, which will be the next one to launch, um, which we'll kind of dive in then into his expertise as it relates to, you know, really kind of managing a property to create opportunities to target mature bucks. So um, we spent a lot of time with Jeff. Uh, it was a great conversation. Uh, really looking forward to getting in, diving into that. But before we get into that portion of today's show, I know I teased a little bit on the upfront that we had a, a big reveal, and I know we had a big reveal not too long ago, and that was someone was having a baby, and I don't, I don't think that's the big reveal today, at least I hope it's not, at least on my end. Um, but I know a lot of you have probably noticed over the past couple months, uh, I've been flying solo quite a bit. 
Um, and it's just, you know, <clears throat> life kind of happens and schedules don't always necessarily necessarily align. Uh, my intention with this podcast was always to have a, a, a co-host and not necessarily be a, a, a one man show. So as the you know, schedules are what they are, I, you know, Phil may join every so often on an interim basis, kind of as a guest going forward. Um, and I started kind of thinking, who would I want to share the, the, the platform here with and, and share with you guys and kind of started kicking that around. And, and there was one guy that came to mind and had a couple conversations uh, with him and it seemed like it was going to work out. So I'm super stoked today to introduce everyone out there listening to the uh, New Truth from the Stand uh, podcast co-host, and he is none other than Johnny Law, Johnny Utah Mulligan of Arrow Wild Company. How are you doing, my brother? What's happening, man? This is super exciting stuff. <laughs> I know, right? It's uh, it's been a long time in the uh, in in the making, man. It's uh. We've been kicking this around for a while, and I'm glad we were able to just kind of bring it to uh, bring it to fruition. I think it's it's going to be really cool that we're able to bring you know some of the Arrow Wild folks into the fold of what's going on with the Truth from the Stand, and it's super exciting to bring the Truth from the Stand folks into the fold of what's going on with uh, with uh, with Arrow Wild. But for those you know that are listening that maybe didn't catch the podcast when you were on as a guest, um, just you know a little bit of background about you, what you're doing in the in the in the whitetail world, and and, and so forth. Yeah, so. Um you know, getting a chance to meet you and started following your blogs and stuff like that and started listening to podcasts. And I'm like, man, this is a really cool guy. And, and then you and I became friends. We kept talking and talking and stuff. And, and this whole idea of uh, coming together on the podcast stuff with you and co-hosting with you, um, it, you know, it's it's been, it's been super exciting planning it out. I'll be honest, I was a little nervous because this is one side of technology that I knew nothing about whatsoever. But um, a little bit about me. I, I live in Southeast Iowa. Um, I am the uh, Wicked Tree Gear Vice President. And then I have a web show uh, that I do with some buddies here in the area, um, more central Midwest area, Wisconsin, Kentucky, and Iowa. But um, that's kind of me in a nutshell. Live and breathe whitetails and and want to learn as much as I can from everybody uh, every day, just like yourself, you know? Yeah, man. I mean, it's uh, it's one of those things where, you know, definitely, you know, when we when we started kind of kicking this idea around and, you know, I don't know, we probably talked about it for, for like a month, it seemed like, you know, you know, just at different times through text messages mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. and phone calls and stuff. And then it just, it was one of those things where it's just... I'm trying to figure it's figure out the right words to kind of I guess kind of say, but it was really looking for that person who is as as weird <laughs> and as passionate as I am about yeah uh, about hunting whitetails and uh, you know I thought it was always interesting or you know the possibility of bringing someone in who has a different perspective from a different region was kind of important too. Um, you know we both hunt. Mm-hmm. I don't think we could get much different in terms of like the places that we're hunting as far as you know Iowa being kind of the mecca of the whitetail world. And then Pennsylvania kind of being, you know, what it is, which is a great heritage hunting state. But, it, you know, I don't think it would ever be mistaken for a for a big buck state. And, uh, yeah, I'm just really glad it came together, man. And uh, the one thing I will say is now that you're on the uh, on the other side of the mic here as uh, as a member of the Truth from the Stand podcast or as the as the co-host, you know, when you're on as a guest, we have to be nice to you because at some point we may want you to come back on. But the, the gloves are off now, brother. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Fully expected. Knuckle up. Knuckle yeah, up. yeah. 
Yeah, there's no, there's no uh, there's no professional courtesy provided here. So no. we'll, uh, <laughs> since we were texting about that uh, a little earlier, exactly. Um, oh boy. So one thing I do want to get into a little bit is uh, you know I always like to dive into the deer work that we're each doing, man. So what uh, I know you've been I know you've been hustling on the on the deer front, man. Like I, you've been doing a lot of updates to your property. What do you got? Uh, what do you got shaking out there? Oh man, you're not kidding. So. Last year, you know, just a, a real quick, quick background. Last year when I moved to this property, I didn't have a whole lot of time to um, to do everything that I wanted to do. You know what I mean? Um, but I also kind of needed that first season to learn what the deer were already doing um, so I could kind of gauge uh, my plan and, and as to what I was going to do on the property moving forward. So I got that first season under my belt here. Uh, identified the kind of the common travel routes uh, and how the deer utilize my property. It's not a big property. It's 22 acres. Um, and I, I'm holding on to that, uh, you know, that sentiment that people say, it's not all about the size of the property. As long as it's the right acreage, you know, you're good. So I'm hoping that, that that's true. But right. the deer in my property, you know, uh, I've told you before, they, they move north and south and south and north. Um, I don't get a lot of horizontal movement on the property. So what I wanted to do was in my, my house, the residence is located on the southern end, southern end of the property. So this year, I finally had a little more time, and I was able to put in a lot more food plots. We brought in a big D8 dozer, and we opened up about four acres of timber, and I did the majority of those plots along the northern side and they kind of dip a little bit south but they're they're kind of across that backdrop of the northern side of the property and what i'm trying to do is encourage the deer to utilize the full length of the property and hopefully stay a little longer Um, last year i ran trail cameras and i could have a buck that could cover the entire north to south or south to north length of my property i mean he could he could do it in a in two minutes you know uh, they just weren't wasting a lot of time. So having that food, my idea is hopefully I can get those deer to encourage them to, you know, stay a little while, take your shoes off. You know what I mean? Um, (laughs) right. So if I can get them to stay. So I've been working on that. Uh, we got a lot of clover in this year. It did great with the rain. And then we put in soybeans and the rain shut off. So, uh, when people talk about if you want it to rain, go out and wash and wax your truck. Well, for me, it was plant soybeans, and I shut off all rain to southeast Iowa, I think. But um, most recently, uh, this weekend, the thing that I'm really excited about, and guys like Jeff Sturges, they've been talking about it forever. Um, some buddies of mine here in town from Advanced Whitetail Systems, uh, Andy Orr, uh, they've been talking about doing small ponds. And... You know, the idea of small ponds, we all know that water is important, but for me personally, I didn't hear, I didn't hear ponds hit mainstream till just maybe a year or two years ago. Right. Uh, That's when it seemed to really get popular and, you know, it caught on. Um, So I've been wanting to do ponds for a while and I picked up a skid steer. I dug uh, two ponds just on the southern end of, of two different food plots. Uh, one's a bean plot and one's a green, soy, uh, cl- I'm sorry, clover clover plot. And um, they're about 20 foot by 20 foot and about two and a half foot deep in the center. They're sloped, so hopefully if critters get in, critters can get out. Um, I just need Mother Nature to help me fill them up, but I'm pretty excited about it. 
Nice. Yeah. It's uh, I saw the uh, all the work you were doing, man. And it's it's uh you were taking on some 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 hefty uh some hefty projects, man, but it, I'm I'm interested to see what you have kind of I guess how some of the updates work out for you because I have a similar situation at my dad's mm-hmm. property where you know he just picked it up this year. Um, it, it's a it's a smaller parcel in comparison to the neighborhood that it's in. You know because most of the farms out there are in the, the hundreds of acres, and he's got you know fifty. And um, I'm running trail cameras for the first time, of course. You know he just got the property and have cameras out, and I've got a. I did some glassing and I saw one really nice buck in the area. Um, I have one decent up and comer for Pennsylvania. He's an up and comer on on camera so far. Um, but the one side of the property, um, they're they're doing kind of the same thing that you're talking about. They're running it north and south, and there's a tr- yeah, and I, it's the why I hung the camera there. I mean, they had a path kind of beat down, and I knew that that was where they were kind of working. And it's really weird. Whoever had the property previously had page wire fence like fence sections off, so it's like it's creating natural edge, and they're f- absolutely following that that edge at different places. Um, oh, and then nice. I kinda, yeah. So I kind of went in and, uh, put in a small or killed off a small area for a plot. Um, cause for this property, I'm going to forego the large type plot. I mean, there's nowhere that I can really put anything in bigger than like maybe an acre. Um, just by the way, the prod- property is kind of set up, but, um, putting in probably, you know, I don't know, somewhere between, it's a little more than a quarter acre, I guess, and less than a half acre, but snaking along the timber edge where I see where they're crossing a fence line and just trying to pull them in near to the timber's edge um, to where I can put my dad in a tree stand and maybe get him a shot opportunity because he lives in the Carolinas. When he drives up seven hours, I don't want him to go and hunt and not see anything. I'll at least put him on a stand where he might be able to see some deer and have a little bit of fun. Sure. Um, but there's a nice bedding area that I found uh, scouting, and that was the direction that the buck was coming from. So I have a feeling that that fellow might be living uh, back in back in that area, which is also on the opposite side of the property as to where the food is at, so it seems kind of it seems kind of intuitive. That's where he would be, considering that the does would be probably in the the the, sec, the, the first line of bedding between uh, right. you know where the food is and where the the, the really good bedding is. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. I'm interested to see what happens with the with your property because it sounds like I have something similar um, similar here. But uh, yeah, hopefully get some rain. Oh man, I tell you what, it's. You know, and it's funny because I did a live video um, the other day on Facebook and and people are commenting and they're sending me pictures and they're going, you can have some of my rain. And, you know, I get it. It's uh, feast or famine. And, and there's some people that they I got a picture of somebody's garden that had four inches of water sitting on top of it. And I'm like, well, I guess it could be the alternate. You know, that could be the other the flip side. But um, this rain's just it's a it's a bear. Uh, I think what I'm going to do uh, tomorrow, uh, there's a there's a water service company that I have been told that they will um, they'll bring a big water truck out, and they've got a hundred to two hundred foot of hose, and they'll fill whatever you need filled if it's a swimming pool or something like that. Um, so I'm looking at doing that and to just go ahead and get those ponds filled because as hot as it is as dry as it is if i can have water on the property i can get bucks there immediately right yeah i mean the uh the one the one thing on all the properties that i have control over i when i use the word control i use it very loosely it's not owned by me it's owned by either in-law or or father so it's (laughs) the amount of control they'll allow me to have Uh um the uh, dad's property actually has a nice water hole, two water holes on it. They're actually fed by natural springs, so that's kind of nice. 
Uh, the other property, oh, lucky my in-laws' you. property has. Uh, I know, right? Uh, the the uh, in-laws' property has a. Uh, it's uh, bordered by a, a trout stream, um, so there's plenty of water there. Mm-hmm. So it's. I've never seen the effects of of a water hole, only because we've always had water around. I've considered putting them in. I just don't. You know, I just never knew how effective it was going to be. Now, with that said, there's not my dad's property is kind of on the top of a mountain. Um, it, it, the views there are great. Like once you get out on like the hard road and you're driving down past some of the farms, like you can see like three counties or something like that. Um, but with that being said, uh-huh. being on a mountain, there is zero water there unless you have a natural spring. So I'm hoping um, that that is a. Uh, a draw for the the deer in the area and you know like a real smart deer hunter i did not put one single camera on the water source <laughs> <laughs> so we'll uh we'll see the that's you know and that's one of the things that uh we did today we we actually i went out there with a couple of buddies uh a couple of my guys on arrow wild and and we went out and we uh we we set some stick and picks up and and got some trail cameras out on those um we already had deer hoofs uh, prints down in the dry ponds already, and I'm sure it's just curiosity. Uh, they're coming in there to check them out, but um, it was neat to see that deer were already walking in dry ponds that that were just put in. And um, we did some we did some clover and we did some high sugar rye around the ponds and um, see if we can get some some stuff growing up around there as quick as possible but yeah man we get a little rain um and get uh get the ponds going and, and get these uh get these food plots growing some more it's um you know it's and that's the thing you and i've talked about it's just fun um getting to getting to play with these guys you know what i mean getting to create better better food sources and try to improve some uh do some conservation efforts and and create better habitats um and obviously, you know, let's be honest. I mean, we're we're hoping to push the, you know, push the odds in our favor for the fall. Right. Yeah. It's a. It's one of those things where I, you know, my my father in law sometimes, you know, he doesn't enjoy some of the work he has to do down at the farm because I think he has to, you know, it's he's retired and he wants to enjoy life and he should, you know, he work. He he did his time, as I like to say. Um, but for me, it's like he. <laughs> He's, when I go back mm-hmm. and I'm always into like, you know, I want to go outside. I want to hang tree stands. I want to go, you know, I want to go, you know, spray fields. I want to go plant plots, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And I was like, you know, I'm cooped up inside in a, in a you know, in an office, you know, five days a week. Because like when I get my chance to put my hands in the dirt, man, I just want to be outside and don't want to come back in. So that's part of the fun, too, man, is just being able to be outside doing the doing the stuff that we'd like to do hanging cameras hanging stands you've been hanging some stands man i saw you had a whole pile of them out in your or out in your driveway dude it's you need like a whole army to put up those stands <laughs> yeah we um we we got two more sets hung today and um one set uh over top of each of the new water holes actually and um it just so worked out that uh the position that I wanted to put those those uh, those ponds in, uh, I had several trees to choose from that offered a, offered plenty of cover even when the you know the foliage drops, and it's still going to give me um, give me a nice background, and I'm not going to get silhouetted up in the tree myself you know and the camera guy, and so that's what we did today, and the key was to make sure that those stands were hung in a position, 
and I was in a position from the hunter stand that I can shoot into those uh, into those ponds. That's um, that's that's how much uh, merit I should say I'm putting into those those water sources. Is that I wanted to make sure that um, I can shoot if there's a deer standing uh, hooves in water, so to speak. So. That was uh, that was important, but we got two more sets up today. I've got um, the Missouri property to uh, to get uh, two sets in, and then that's it. I'm done. I'm done with sets. Um, the rest is all running gun stuff on the public land. Nice. Yeah, most of mine will be uh, every year. It seems like it's running running gun for me for the for the most part. I usually hang a few um, of you know what I like to call old faithfuls. Oh yeah. Uh, at my dad's, you know, I I hung uh, there's there's well, I think there's three stands up up there currently that are hung, um, and I'll see if they stay where where they're at or not. It's also part of my thing though too is not living near those properties. It's like I I feel like whenever I put up a stand that I'm just kind of inviting someone to kind of wander on the property and decide to hunt it. And I feel like if I don't have a stand there and I make it difficult for them to hunt it, then they won't. Um, so some of that's why I don't put some you know some stands up. But I do usually put up a couple a year, and then other than that, it's the uh, it's the lone wolf you know assault too, and then a climber, and uh, and uh, and I just kind of go at it that way. But so I think uh, at this point, man, it's a uh, you know I just want to I think we should go ahead and get De- uh, Jeff dialed in here and have the conversation with Jeff. But uh, I'm glad to make the announcement that you are uh, officially on board and on team. And, uh, you know, folks can, you know, continue to look forward to uh, having a little piece of Arrow Wild as part of the uh, Truth From The Stand uh, podcast and uh, some great updates from uh, from the big buck state of, of Iowa on a uh, on a uh, podcast by podcast basis. So, hey, I really appreciate you joining the show, man. Uh, I'm looking forward to working with you and partnering with you. And uh, here's to some new beginnings, my man. Yes, sir. And and like I said, man, not to turn it into a total love fest, but it's uh, it, trust me, it's it's all it's all on this side, man. I, I appreciate you letting me do this with you, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. You know, you've got um, you've got an awesome list of guests uh, already lined up, and these are all people that are very knowledgeable in their field, and and they all have their own expertise in certain areas, and and it's all things that we can all learn from and bounce ideas off of, so I'm I'm looking forward to it myself. Awesome. So, yeah, it's uh, before it gets weird, let's go ahead and get Jeff dialed in. (laughs) Before we get Jeff on the line, I wanted to take a quick break to let all of you know that Exodus Outdoor Gear is still hooking up all the Truth From The Stand listeners now with a $20 savings on any camera purchase when you use the promo code TRUTH at checkout. Instead of sharing an Exodus experience this week as I often do, this entire show is an Exodus experience as Jeff and I both use the Exodus cameras to monitor our hunting locations. All right, welcome back. You're listening to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And I got to tell you, today's guest is probably one of the guests that we've had in the uh, nearly a year that we've had the podcast that I'm uh, the most excited about having. It's been, a, it's been a long time coming. He probably needs very little introduction to most of you. Um, but I'm on the phone uh, today with Jeff Sturgis of Whitetail Habitat Solutions. Um, Jeff obviously has a, a Whitetail Habitat Solutions uh, consulting company in terms of, of habitat and property management. He's written a, a litany of books and articles. He has a wonderful blog with a ton of content. And actually, I can probably attribute a lot of the, uh, I guess, strategic thinking I started doing about deer hunting to his blog and his writings whenever I started making that change from what you will maybe call your uh, 
your your everyday deer hunter to maybe your more obsessed deer hunter. Uh, but without further ado, uh, Jeff, how are you doing today, sir? I am doing great, Clint, and it is uh, it's great to be here. I really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's uh, great to have you on, man. I know this has been a long time coming. It's uh, schedules for uh, for deer hunters and, uh, and and folks who get involved in a lot of deer work can be uh, quite challenging to overcome, right? It, you know, it really can, and i I've wanted to uh, I've wanted to do this with you for a long time, and I've always kept it on my in my mind. And you know, it's great to finally uh, come together with this. But yeah, the the schedules are hectic a lot, and um, it, it it does it. You know, sometimes you're wondering what what work that you want to do next, and so I feel very blessed to have the work that I do. So and um, and to be as busy as I am, and to have a full time employee, and and um, but at the same time to be able to talk to you today is is just great and i've been looking forward to it Clint. awesome and it's great having you on and i'm really looking forward to diving into a bunch of different topics today um you know i know that you know reading your your writings and and watching your videos and of course reading the books that you've uh, that you've written um has changed the way i look at deer hunting and uh so you know i kind of know a fair bit about you from the reading that i've done and, and, and studying that i've done but for those who might be listening that don't aren't as aware or don't have as much background information on you as i do uh could you just start off i guess by giving us you know, a little bit of information about yourself as far as like where you're from what you do professionally in the whitetail world sure sure um well i i was born and raised in michigan in fact i lived there for 40, uh, 42 years. And then the past five years in Wisconsin. And I grew up in a non-hunting family. I grew up in a fishing family and mm-hmm. I was pretty lucky to have that type of family, those family vacations. We went fishing every single year. And through that, uh, read outdoor life field and stream. And, and, uh, I looked at all those hunting adventures in the pages and my brother and I asked for bows when we were 15, 13 years old. And we, we started hunting then. So it was just, we had no one really to mentor us too much other than just, uh, uh, you know, a friend at church or a um, couple individuals like that that we could ask questions to. But other than that, it was kind of diving in and really scouting and looking at things in the woods and, and trying to read as much as we can and learn as much as we can on our own. And um, that really kind of shaped going forward what I do because we had that really kind of scavenge and like a lot of people, you know, to really hunt where we could. And what gave us opportunity to hunt, whether it was uh, public land, private land, friends land, um, we pretty much tried to figure out what we were doing with deer, tried to see how we could follow deer. We, I remember when we were younger, we used to find a track and think it was a big buck track, and then we'd literally try to follow it. You know, I don't know if we ever made it more than three or 400 yards, but <laughs> we'd, we'd try to feel in the leaves for the track, and, and that was more... Um, getting to try to put ourselves in the in a buck's footstep or a deer's footstep, and uh, and really kind of follow what he would do in a daily life, and and that project forward, you know, a lot into how I hunt now, whether it be on private or public land, and then also how I look at client parcels and scout client parcels, um, and how I interpret the deer the deer sign on there. So, looking back, it was kind of interesting. I wonder if if my dad actually hunted if I would have really been as inquisitive, I think I would have been, but at the same time, yeah, I think you follow what your, what your uncles, your father, your, your hunting mentors do. And a lot of times, if you have that huge uh, support, they impact you more than, than you're actually 
learning it and in some in some ways. So we were kind of forced to do it on our own. So we didn't follow any patterns. It was just we had to pick it up. So that really did shape a lot of what I do today. It's funny because I've I've talked to a couple folks and some of the guys I'd, I'd say that I know that are what I would consider to be pretty successful hunters. Um, it didn't come from hunting hunting families, oddly enough. Um, but as you kind of mentioned, they had, they had that support group though, that you had to where it was not necessarily that they hunted, but they were supportive of them just getting involved in the woods and finding something that they were passionate about. And I wonder if there's something too, that, you know, there weren't any, um, poor habits built. You were, you were having to learn just by what you were seeing. So you were, you were creating the correct habits very early on, um, as opposed to being taught a specific way to, to hunt maybe. It's a little bit of an interesting. No, no, Clint. Take. I I can say there were probably a lot of poor habits that we <laughs> that we followed. <laughs> I know we made a lot of mistakes. We we it seemed like we were you know my brother and I just doing some of the coolest things and all of a sudden it backfire. You know right. we we think we have this deer in hand and <laughs> we'd we'd mess up pretty right. badly. So, but I and my dad, my dad, you know, uh, to give him a lot of credit. You know, again, coming from the fishing family, you love the outdoors. He would basically go stand by a tree because mm-hmm. we were too young to hunt. And so he would stand on a, you know, by a tree and we might end up a mile away from him somewhere, but right. <laughs> he was out there and he'd sit in a car and wait for us. And, um, but anyways, yeah, we had a lot of support uh, to actually go out and do what we wanted to do. Right. So sp- speaking of, of making missteps and then completely turning the page here. So I wanted to ask you, I, and I kind of sure. know a little bit of the uh, answer to this question just from following you. And then of course, you know, our, our mutual friends that we have with the you know, the boys from Exodus, but uh, how was your 2016 season? Cause if I'm remembering correctly, you had a pretty, uh, a pretty stellar year last year and we're, uh, we're able to, uh, to take a couple of different bucks in a, in a couple of different States, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah. It was uh different, you know, and we, we talked a little bit um, before this, but, um, you know, I love to hunt public land. I love to hunt private land. And they're, um, you know, which one's better, I'm not really sure. I, th- I think we'll talk about that. But at the same time, I was fortunate enough to um, shoot one of our target box or buck that we were after in Ohio on public land. And so I was really happy with that one. And that was a long time coming. I've, you know, over a six-year period, I've hunted down there. And this would have been, you know, probably about 35 different sits down there between muzzleloader gun and bow i i don't get a lot of time per year down there right but um i felt like we were finally in an area where there was good bucks and we were able to capitalize and so that was a really good feeling to get that one that was um that was fun going down there it's rough hunting but i love it and then uh privately and there's a buck that i'd watch for i'd watch for three years um dylan who works with me he he named a lot of the bucks named them together but one he named Diego. I don't know where he got the name Diego, but that's that's the name we had for the buck. And and uh, so I was able to watch that for three years, and we thought he was a five year old, and then um, was able to harvest him this year. And so that was that was another one. There's another buck, Terry, mm-hmm. that we watched grow up during the summer. We only had two years of trail cam photos of him, and I was able to get that one with my gun too in Wisconsin. So those three bucks. It was a great year. And then even um, my son, Jake, um, there's a buck that hadn't developed an antler on the one side for a couple of years, or it was very poorly formed. And anyways, we had named it Tommy Boy. And (laughs) because it was was a little goofy, and uh, and Jake, I was was by Jake's side when he shot that one. And so that one, we figured it was a four-year-old, and that was was a 
a great experience with uh, Jake too. So we had a we had a great season. Um, my stepson Dante shot his first buck. I was by by his side for that, and he shot a doe too. And so it was just all around with the boys, and then the blend of private and public land. It was it was a really fun season, and you know that's what it's about is creating memories to last a lifetime, and especially with the kids. Um, that's that's been something that's great, and I can't wait to bring the kids down to Ohio to go on public land here pretty soon too. So. Nice. Yeah. They're getting the, uh, the full experience. I, I, I had a first, my first deer or buck encounter last year on a squirrel hunt with my daughter. Um, unfortunately I didn't take my bow with me. I just had a 22 with her. She's, oh. she's eight. Um, <laughs> so I actually hunted that morning and I, I'd mentioned this story in a previous podcast, but I hunted that morning. I was up in a tree. I promised her a, a squirrel hunt in the afternoon and, uh, went down to the house to grab her and took her up. And I was like, ah, should I take my bow or shouldn't? And I was like, nah, I was like, she's not going to sit still enough for me to even get close enough. Even if I do see anything, so I left it and yeah. walked up this ridge and um, sat down. And we weren't there. I mean, if we were there maybe 10 minutes. And I heard something coming. And I was like, that sounds like it's a little more than a than a squirrel. <laughs> and so I, I couldn't see up over yeah. this little knoll. So I picked her up and put her on this log. I was like, tell me what you see. And she's like, her response was, I was like, what are you seeing? She's like, I see a deer. I was like, all right. And, she, and then she turns around oh. and she looks at me. She goes, daddy, it's got a lot of points. <laughs> oh, no. And then it walked, How old is she? It walked, uh, she's eight. So uh, she oh, she's, okay. she shoots a bow. She shoots a compound. But, you know, of course, she can't pull back enough weight yet. Um, but she's, yeah. pretty, she's pretty good with it. Um, you know, she goes on some turkey hunts with me. But that deer ended up coming 20 yards broadside in front of us and never knew that we were there. Oh. And I was just wishing that I would have had my bow because she would have seen the whole thing unfold and, you know, it would have been a really cool experience. I mean, she thought it was amazing anyway because she got to see a, you know, a nice buck in the woods out. So, but, uh, you started talking a little bit. You know, she'll probably remember that forever too. That's that's awesome. Oh yeah. She talked about it for, you know, a couple of weeks after that. Anytime she saw one of our relatives, she mentioned that she was out in the woods with me and she saw saw a buck hunting. So I'm hoping she gets the fever. I'm turning, I'm I'm making my own little hunting buddy here, I think. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So I wanted to to dive into, um, you know, targeting specific deer, right? Because I think, you know, let me ask it this way. At what point in your hunting career did you start targeting specific bucks and why? Because it seems like hunters kind of exist on this continuum or this, you know, evolution, if you will, of kind of gaining their, their sea legs, if you will, in, in, in hunting, you know, and specifically mm-hmm. bow hunting, I think it's probably m- more specific. Um, and then they start kind of changing as they, as they start to have some wins, I guess you could say, they start to kind of look mm-hmm. at what are the next set of challenges, you know, and then it, and to me, you know, at least it's happened to me this way is that you start to look at like what specific deer do I want to go after? And so I'm just curious for you, at one point in your career, did that happen where targeting bucks specifically, a specific one really started being the thing that you were doing year after year? Well, you know, it wasn't successfully, mm-hmm. but in the in the first years that I was hunting back in 1986, 1987, 88, um, we started watching the fields in the Thumb area of Michigan. Um, that was one location. And then we started hunting Pontiac Lake Recreation Area, uh, which is in southern Michigan. And in both those areas, um, in Pine Lake, there's an eight point, um, I believe he's three and a half years old. 
um, which to me, it was a huge buck. And we had seen him a couple of times. My brother and I actually walked up um, um, on one of those where we're following the tracks. You know, we think we're, <laughs> we're Daniel Boone or somebody. We're going to walk right up on him. And, and sure enough, we walked up on a big eight point and he stood up and we, of course, spoke him and he ran. And, but um, we tried hunting that buck and, you know, here we're 16, 14 at the time. And um, ended up missing him and watching him. And then when it developed where you're hunting in the private land up in the thumb area, we'd watch the bucks all summer long. And I had never shot a buck at the time. And, uh, and at that time, if, you know, if I shot a buck, then I looked at it like, I think I had one more tag after that. And I, if I shot something small, then my season was over and I really loved to hunt. And so I don't know if it was necessarily that we were targeting specific bucks and holding out for that buck, or we just didn't want to shoot something early and end our season. Right. And now we did, we did go after a lot of does too. And so in, at that time, I think they said there was right around 50 deer per square mile and in a lot of the, just so many does. And so the does, they came to us pretty easy in those early years, um, whether it was with a bow or gun. Um, but yeah, again, those bucks, I can remember specific bucks and they were back in 1986, 87. In fact, I had the first buck ever that I'd ever seen out with bow. He walked right by me. He was a four point. And I I passed him up, and uh, I didn't take the shot because I knew there were bigger boxes. And again, I didn't want to potentially end my season too early. That was in the early season, so right. um, that would have been. I think that's going back to 1987. Wow, you know, even at that time. So so pretty early, you know, pretty early. But it it wasn't necessarily it was that it was about these huge animals you're seeing. It was you know a combination of we saw some that we really wanted to try to get or you know, hunt, and um, and then at the same time we didn't want to end our season early. Right. You know, that makes sense. So, I mean, if you had to add it up, right, because you started, you know, into kind of your explanation, it was kind of by default. Some some of it was maybe you saw these bucks that you really wanted to go after and some of it was just not wanting to end your hunting season, which I can completely um, I can completely understand that you get precious little time in the woods and uh, you want to extend it as much as you can. Uh, But if you had to add it up over the course of your your years, um, how many targeted bucks do you think that you've, you know, number one, successfully targeted, and then two, successfully harvested over the years? Um, yeah, that's a good question because targeted and harvested, I've messed up a few times. Right. <laughs> so there's quite, a few, there's quite a few bucks that I've gone after that I can, and boy, those really burn in my head a little bit. You know, I can, right. I can still remember the pain back in, you know, 94, 95, 96, some bucks that I targeted and, and missed or spooked. Um, but uh, I would say it's, Right around 35 um, that I've harvested, and um, we could add another, you know, at least seven or eight that I've messed up on, um, you know, on top of that list. And out of that list, I would say, you know, six or seven were on public land, uh, maybe eight, and then the rest were on private land in, you know, different states. Nice. So I know you mentioned at the top a couple of times that you're, you're hunting a combination of, of private and public. And even you just kind of mentioned that where you had, you know, some of your targeted bucks that have been successful harvests were on, um, were on public land and some of them were on private. So I kind of wanted to walk through your process of, of hunting a specific buck on each type of parcel. So private versus public land and talk about the, the similarities that you've seen over the course of the years that you've been doing this. And then, of course, the differences that you that you've kind of encountered, because 
you know, I hunt a combination of, of both as I, as I, I'm going to assume, you know, a lot of folks out there listening have, you know, either a small parcel and some public land that they like to, to get onto, even if they're hunting public land to on poor hunting days, if you will, just to have a location to go sit. Um, but All I right. want to, I want to start with this question and, and I'll give credit where credit is due. And I don't know if he was the genesis of it, but our mutual friend there, Matt Klein from Exodus, posted this on his Facebook page, mm-hmm. and I thought it was a, an intriguing question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I might yeah, be jumping the gun here a little bit, but uh, <clears throat> I wanted to ask, you know, I guess the, the question basically was was this. If you're targeting a public land buck or or a private land buck, and you harvest either one of them, is is one or the other more rewarding and do we feel as if it's harder to take a targeted deer on public land? Um, I have a, I have kind of like, I guess my opinion on it, it, but I'd love to hear your kind of thoughts on it. And, you know, considering you're the subject matter expert here, I'd really like to get your thoughts. Well, you know, it's really, it's really a tough question. Um, and I say that because, um, it's almost like if you define an answer that this one's more rewarding than this one, or this one's more, and I'm not, you know, it's not that we're looking at like one's more valuable than the other, right? Um, or one's harder; it's diminishing the other, right? And um, you know, I can look at my own bucks. I shot, you know, roughly twenty-five bucks on public land, and then a lot more on private land. Um, the difference between those bucks is that a, a, a lot smaller percentage of the public lands were actually targeted bucks, mm-hmm. and then a lot higher, a pretty real high percentage of the private land bucks for targeted targeted bucks, you know, that I specifically went after. So there's something to be said for that. You know, when I'm hunting public land, um, it's, it's a little bit more random. Um, mm-hmm. you're putting your, yourself in a position to harvest a mature buck or harvest a buck, um, especially in the younger years. And then in private land, you're trying to put yourself in position to harvest a specific buck in a specific location. And so, and as far as one being more rewarding than the other, it's really hard because I can think back to bucks on public land like the one last year in Ohio, um, one up in Michigan on public land a few years ago. And boy, those bucks just, they, it was such an incredible feeling to harvest them. But then I can think of bucks that, you know, were three or four years in the making on private land where you watch these bucks grow. You almost felt like you got to know their personality a little bit. And and then you finally get a chance to harvest on public land where I hunt. I usually have very few other hunters that I see um, anywhere near me. I I don't hunt public land if there's a lot of people. And in every state I've been to, I can't tell you the number of private land parcels that I've gone to in Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Minnesota that back up to public land. Mm-hmm. So that you have this small private chunk and it backs up to public land. And these people tell me they see no one on the public land. So there are areas all over in every state that you can find that you can get back and have a little slice of heaven all to yourself. And, and a lot of times it's several hundred acres or more right. where you just don't have a really high chance of seeing another hunter. And so in that way, you kind of have a place yourself. So if you figure out a buck or a movement pattern, you can capitalize on it um, and, and not have a lot of interference with other people. Where on private land, you might have 25 people. And I've counted them up in town in Wisconsin. I think we have between you know, 20 and 25 guys that will be hunting hunters. It'll be within uh, three quarters of a mile to mile, you know, surrounding us. So right. you're really competing with a lot of people sometimes right up on your border. And I hunt uh, 48 commercials in uh, Wisconsin. I have, I have three of them right. that I hunt. So nice. I, I know that's not a very definitive answer, but right. it's, you know, there's, it's really, um, 
if you've immersed yourself in both the public and the private land hunting. And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm getting older too sometimes, but I think I have over 30, 30 years hunting and, right. and almost every year I hunt private and public land out of all those years. And, and, you know, again, say one that's one is more valuable than the others kind of diminishing the other almost. And right. I'm not really sure to be honest. Um, I, I love it all. And, uh, and they, they do, off their unique uh, patterns, um, you know, that each one is is good for, whether it's private or public land. Right. I think I think you hit the nail on the head there where you said each one offers a unique challenge, right? For me, it comes down to experience, I guess, is where my answer kind of starts. And the experiences mm-hmm. for, for either are kind of unique unto themselves. So I don't I have a hard time, similar to you, of putting value on one versus the other. I think you could have the debate you know, probably more successfully if you defined what harder or more rewarding meant. Um, you know, and for mm-hmm. me, you know, if you're defining harder, it's like I had, I took a nice buck in Ohio on public ground last year. And that was a really rewarding experience because, you know, if I defined harder as the amount of, um, you know, uh, effort, like physical effort that had to go into it, um, and, and, and work, I guess you would say, because I didn't know anything about the land. I spent a day speed scouting it. Um, spent some mm-hmm. time scouting it whenever I got there. The terrain was rugged. I was packing with, you know, a stand on my back and my, my bag. And so it was just, it was physically demanding. Um, so it was super right. rewarding to go somewhere that I had no prior experience with and, and was able to put the puzzle pieces together pretty quickly and, yeah. and make it happen. That was a nice buck, by the way. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. a nice buck, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, very but, rewarding. But uh, but at the same time, there's this one that I've been watching on our family farm, which, you know, it's it's in Pennsylvania. So, you know, I know from the work that you do, you kind of understand where Pennsylvania is in terms of where most of the state of Pennsylvania sure. in terms of quality of, of deer. It's not it's not known as a big buck state, um, but there's a deer that right. kind of named Lucky for this year because I had a picture of him two years ago as a, as a two year old six point. And uh, he showed up again last year and he was a seven point last year, but way wider and way taller. Um, and I have a couple of trail camera pictures of him from last year. And then I had two on the hoof sightings of him and I named him lucky because he was just out of bow range during late season whenever I saw him. And, uh, and he was and for that reason, he was lucky as he otherwise might've met some carbon expressed, uh, expressed arrow yeah. <laughs> at, at, at that, that evening. Yeah. Um, but you know, he's, he's a deer that I've watched for two years and I have him on uh camera again here this, uh, uh, this spring slash summer. And it looks like he's 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 sticking around. And he's going to be a nice deer for our farm this year. I think he's probably four. Um, won't be won't be the size of the one that I got in Ohio. But the fact that he's mm-hmm. been on the farm that you know I've done food plot and habitat you know work on and uh, watched him kind of grow up, and the fact that he made it to four years old in the area that we hunt in PA with our family farm, which is extremely high pressure. You know, similar to what you would face you know in most of the of the areas in Michigan, I assume. Um, would make it extremely right. rewarding because one, he made it through <laughs> to to be hunted for for over two years, and uh, mm-hmm. and, and for number two, um, just the fact that I have some data on him and could kind of follow him and, and was able to play that chess match with him to where I think I know where he beds now. I think I know how he gets to and from bed. Um, so I was able yeah. to kind of play that chess match with him, which is rewarding in a different sense, and it, and that is also a different definition of harder. Because I've actually had to be much more Definitely. strategic and kind of plan my moves um, to put myself in a position, even last year, to see him on the hoof. Um, yeah, know, so. that's, 
that's a really interesting perspective and something that jumped out at me with that you just said um you named him lucky yeah and what about your public land buck did you have a name for him uh no because i i had no prior knowledge that he was even there um i didn't the 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 days I was in stand, he was, I saw a couple different bucks and he wasn't one of them. Um, you know, you know I, I was just thinking, I, we've had a lot of private land bucks. I, I'm not sure I've named a public land buck and yeah. you know, like the one last year was the nine point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that was the, that was the extent of our name. And it was one of the ones that we saw the most and really wanted to, to harvest. But at the same time, I think, almost assigning a name to a buck, um, like lucky, like Diego, like Tommy boy, mm-hmm. um, or whatever, whatever goofy name someone comes up with. It almost, it almost reflects that you actually know that buck a little bit, uh, a little bit more and kind of going back to, you know, you're, you what you were just saying, you have to strategize more, you have to plan more, um, not to say that you don't have public land, but private land can be years in the making. Sometimes public land is, is, uh, you know, a, a buck and it's a reflection of a lot of hard work, a lot of scouting, um, but you really don't know that buck that well sometimes, you know, not to say all the, all the time. Cause I know that Exodus guys, uh, Matt, Chad, have gotten to know some bucks and had some incredible experiences, you know, on yeah. public land. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, that's in, an interesting. interesting perspective. Yeah, no, it, it totally is. Cause I was just thinking, as you were saying that you named yours, the, the, the nine, I, I think I literally, I was thinking of it yesterday as I was driving back from my dad's property and I was thinking, well, what would I call him? Cause I should be getting the mountain back soon. And I was like, and he'll just always <laughs> yeah. probably be the Ohio 10. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. I was like, that's just probably yeah. what his name will be. But, uh, I wanted to dive uh, in. I, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just gonna say, I, I, actually hunted uh, uh, around the Bradford area on the Allegheny Reservoir for 17 years, public land out in Pennsylvania. So I have some really strong roots to Pennsylvania hunting. And that was my first out of state hunt. And well, I actually hunted Indiana in the late eighties, but uh, 93 in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I I hope to get back there someday because I really love hunting those hills there. Yeah. There's a beautiful country. It, it is it is beautiful country, especially if you, once you get out toward the western part of the state, you can get into some some thumpers as you would you know as you get closer to Ohio. There's actually I live oh, yeah. in in uh, near the Philadelphia area, and I was actually at the range the other day. I was talking to a guy had trail camera pictures in the suburbs of 140 to 160 inch deer. One was a, uh, a double drop tine um, from last year. Oh, wow. He has he's seen him. Uh, twice glassing so far it's just hard to hunt them because you're so the the parcels are so small and you can't get access because it's everyone has you know an acre here three acres there five acres um so you got to kind of pick little nooks and crannies of you know of county-owned land like watershed land that you can maybe get in on or whatever uh to hunt them but they just get age on them out there because just they don't get they don't get hunted i couldn't believe the bucks that he was showing me is it, it looked like he was had camera pictures from Ohio or Illinois for that mm-hmm. matter, you know? Um, yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's yeah. really cool. So I, I've basically had stressful nights of looking at my, uh, looking at some maps online, <laughs> trying to figure out how I'm going <laughs> to nice. get on some land. <laughs> well, I know that's, that's what's tough though, getting permission. Cause I know we have Oakland County and lower Michigan and, uh, Oakland County, uh, is, is just, uh, a known hotbed for a box and giant, giant box. And it's amazing. A lot of them get hit by the cars, mm-hmm. you know, on the road or people see them every day on their way to work. But, you know, try to get into that little 10 acre private patch that they live on during the daytime hours and 
Yep. And hunt them, and it's it's nearly impossible. But they, they grow some giant ones, and and I'm sure. sure it's real similar to those uh, suburbs of uh, Philadelphia. Yeah. So hopefully, so stay tuned. I'll see if I can't get on one here this year. Or yeah. Find some land. Oh, that'd be fun. But uh, so I wanted to, you know, as we were talking about public versus private, there, you know, which which one's more rewarding? I think that's a nice segue into kind of the first major major topic that I wanted to to talk through and discuss with you, and that's really kind of going after after targeted deer on public in private land and how it's how it's similar and how it's different. So if, you know, if I'm talking to Jeff and, you know, let's say deer season just ended um, and it's, you know, maybe it's late December or the beginning of, of January, you know, maple muzzle loaders coming in or whatever the case might be. But by and large, a lot of the hunting is, is over and you really start to kind of shift your focus toward what might be coming up for the, the following year. You know, when do you exactly start making your plan for targeting a, a specific buck and how is it different, the beginning stages for how you approach private versus public? Before Jeff shares how he begins to make his plans for targeting a specific buck, let's take a quick break to hear this week's Whitetail Institute food plot tip of the week. I know when I was deciding between perennial and annual plots, I had a big question I had was how long could I expect a perennial plot to last? This week, John shares how long you can expect a perennial plot to thrive and tips for helping it thrive. All right, how long will the perennials last? Uh, it's a good question. Depends on a number of factors. Uh, in a vacuum, you know, imperial whitetail clover, it can last, we say, three to five years. Uh, I have heard of people, uh, there's a guy I know who did a test once just to see how long he could nurse it along until it was just dead. And I think he made it 11 years. Now, now that was not a good food plot. He just wanted to see how long he could make that stuff survive. So for having good, robust performance, uh, you know, five years with imperial whitetail clover uh, or other perennials uh, should be should be the norm. Uh, it depends on certain things, such as making sure you choose the perennial uh, forage product that's designed for the soil type and slope and equipment accessibility of that particular site. The, uh, the product selector on our website, up at the header, header up at whitetailinstitute.com, will lead you through that process and identify the best ones for you for each one of your sites. Uh, the most important thing is before you plant, make sure soil pH is 6.5 or higher. Do a laboratory soil test. Get your lime in the ground. It's the most important thing you can do, and it can make the difference between the best food plots you ever saw and total failure. It's that important. Also address the fertility. Fertility is the nutrients in the soil. Lab soil tests will tell you exactly how much lime and fertilizer you have to add, and that way you're sure you get everything you need, and you don't buy, buy, spend a dime buying anything you don't need. Now, once you get everything done, uh, the seed bed's ready, and you plan according to instructions. In order uh, to, get, uh, to get full life out of it, you need to do a little maintenance on the perennials. It's like a, it's like a car. Uh, you know, changing the oil in the heart is not expensive, uh, but you got to do it. Because if you don't, it's not going to last. Well, the equivalent of that with food plots, the big one is grass. Uh, if you don't control grass in a perennial food plot, it'll take it over. And that makes sense, because if the food plot could outcompete native grasses, it would be invasive. <laughs> so, you know, you could you, you can understand why. Uh, if you plant a perennial out there and you don't spray for grass, you're going to lose the plot early. It's going to impact its quality and its life. 
And that, folks, is a Whitetail Institute food plot tip of the week. And if you'd like to learn which Whitetail Institute products might be right for you, head over to whitetailinstitute.com to check out their product selector tool to help you determine which forage will work best for your food plot needs. Now let's get back to the show. It's, um, you know, public land is uh, it's so different because you're looking for opportunity. And so I look at the deer move the same, they relate to hunter the same, hunters the same, they relate to each other and they relate to food, they relate to bedding, all the same, whether it's on private or public land. On public land, those relationships are often over a much larger and broader area. And so, you know, I often tell my clients that, um, you know, public land in a way is sometimes easier only because if you compare that to private land heavily um, strategized and, and worked on and improved private land is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And we're on public land, it's a lot of boot work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of looking at aerial photos and looking at um, topo maps and really where should a buck uh, move? Why would he move here? I'm looking for habitat changes. Um, I love hunting um, clear cuts. Uh, marshes, uh, big open hardwood edges where they, they have an edge against a swamp, um, um, even big waterways where you have lots of major habitat changes coming together on on, on uh, public land. And so really, um, UP of Michigan, for example, you can take an area of 10,000 acres of a public land and literally boil it, boil it down to 100 to 200 acres that you have to scout. Mm-hmm. Because I like to throw away all the areas that are the same. And I throw away all the areas that are within a half mile to a mile, three quarters of a mile of a road um, or a hunter access point. Um, you really key on areas where one area I like hunting in the UP, um, I had to cross two beaver dams and one was right by the car. Mm-hmm. And it was a very difficult crossing. I fell in once. And, <laughs> and I, I, I considered myself at the time and then in the late 90s, you know, 15 years ago, I was probably more nimble than I am right now, but I, I still fell in there and it was very difficult. I got my boots wet a lot. I <laughs> sometimes had to carry my boots. And so just right there, right from the car, and this is after already driving back in seven miles on a seasonal road and then two miles back on a two track. Mm-hmm. And then you end up at this spot. And so even there, that was very difficult. Again, it was going back to, you're eliminating the areas where you expect a lot of people, you're eliminating the, the common areas and and then you're really focusing on those edges. And that's why I like hunting the big marshes because they would all funnel down somewhere at some point and you could erase literally thousands of acres that you didn't need to walk. And then you're looking for old sign. And so on private land, you're making changes that will produce sign to come. And you're making uh, habitat changes, food changes, bedding changes, where you know the deer will relate to in the future, even if they're not right now. Where on public land, a uh, historical sign has a huge amount of meaning. So if you think a buck should be moving here and you have these reasons, whether it's between clear cuts, it's the edge of hardwoods, it's edge of, edge of marsh, it's where all those habitat features come together. And then you go out there and even if you don't find new sign, you find what appears to be years of, of rubbing activity and maybe even some scraping activity from the year before then you know you're in the right location, even if you don't have current, current sign. And so when it gets into November if or late October or mid-October, if you don't see the sign popping up in that area, then on public land, I don't hunt it. And mm-hmm. so um, at the same time, I might have 
you know, eight or 10 of those locations in the back of my head. And it's really just a matter of checking those areas out right before the season or right before you expect to hunt. And if that sign's there, then you know something's there and you can usually read the sign and it'll let you know if it's a mature buck or not. And then, uh, and then you can go in there and hunt. But at the same time, if I'm not seeing that sign and my cameras are telling me that there's nothing there, then I'm just simply not going to hunt it. I'm not going to sit there with hope that something might come through. Um, I really want to spend my time wisely when I'm in the woods. So really different, you know, that his, that historical sign is very, very important to me on private land. Um, and just telling you that, yeah, this buck should be moving over this bench that connects to this saddle that goes around this point over to that clear cut. So you're, you're still putting the things together where you have bedding for bucks and you have bedding for does and you have a food source and they might be moving through here or you have long range cruising movement. Um, that a buck might move through a certain terrain feature um, on public land, and then you're just you're going out there and basically, uh, you know, justifying your your rationale uh, for saying that a buck should be here, and lo and behold, he, you know, he is or he isn't. Hmm. And so, some of those when I hunt on when I scout on public land, it's really more. I have this mapped out in my head. We have eight or ten areas you want to look at. I used to even carry a card back in the late uh, '90s where I'd have. Um, I'd look at a topo map, I'd draw it out on a three by five card and then I'd laminate it and I'd carry that out with me. And I'd look at those specific islands out in the marshes and the points of hardwoods and basically just check them off one by one. So I might have 15 areas that I want to look at. I only have an hour and a half to scout at a time or two hours, go out, look at a couple, come back. And then you look at a couple again, where if we're going down to Ohio for a weekend, we're trying to check off all of those in one weekend if we can and put some cameras in key locations to kind of match one or two of those or even three of those areas just to let us know that something might be in that area that we can uh, potentially target. Right. You'd mentioned there for a second, you know, you're reading the sign, of course, and if there's, if the the his, historical sign or if sign isn't shown up where you've seen it historically for that year and game cameras aren't telling a good story for you, then you're kind of moving on. So it was a nice segue to kind of ask, you know, how are you gathering inventory on possible targets on each um, you know, as far as public versus private. And it, what I'm, I guess what I'm really kind of looking for here or, or kind of digging at is the differences in your camera locations and camera strategy on public versus private. Uh, public's more, we're looking for long range movement. So we don't want to, you know, it's great to know that a buck is living in this little corner or this bedding area, but at the same time, we just want to know that he's in that area to begin with. And so we're putting our cameras in areas where you expect long range buck movement or they're feeding on this oak flat, just this large oak flat. So you're putting in a, in a food source. Um, and a lot of it like down in Ohio with the train features, I love Hills. I mean, topography is incredible because topography for one thing, you know, on a, on a hunting side, you can cheat the wind with, with right. hills. you can't cheat the wind when it's flat. Um, but uh, but two, the topography dictates that deer, kind of like in a big open marsh area, the deer won't move in some areas and they will move in other areas. We're looking for those nice long benches across the hillside that connect to a bench on the other hillside or connect to a point or a saddle where movement for deer is constricted and predictable. Mm-hmm. And, and then we'll put a camera there. And we look at it like if, if we get a picture of a buck there, yeah, he might be close, but then we'll use the timing of the photo to tell us how far he had to come get there in the first place. Right. And so that'll, that tells us a lot. Um, private land, um, 
you know, I, I do the same on private land. You know, you put the cameras in locations where you expect that movement, but you're specifically relating it to a very defined uh, food source movement or bedding movement or cruising, scraping activity movement. Mm-hmm. And um, and then again, if I if I go into a set, a lot of times I'll check a camera literally on the way to a stand. And if the sign in the area and the camera is telling me that nothing's been there for a week or two, then I'll move on to my next set that I have in mind for that wind direction. And now then I don't check it because I'm already locked into that stand, but I've basically eliminated one. So the potential that movement at that other is greater. And so then I'll make that decision accordingly. Right. So it sounds like for public, you're, you're using cameras and you're looking more at how they're using terrain because you don't have control right at that point. You don't have control over the, where the food is and and things of that nature. So as far as like how they're going to travel, you kind of have to really look at what terrain features are they using to get to where, from where I think they should be to where I think they should be going. And then private, you're really kind of looking to say there should be this travel pattern that occurs because we know they're going to bed here. And we know that we've managed this situation to put food here to try to try to dictate where they're going to move. Now we just want to try to figure out around what time of year a specific buck is going to hit that particular travel corridor and what times of day and what winds does he want to use to use it. Right. And I, you know, with public land, I know some of the guys that hunt public land exclusively, they're looking at it more like I look at private land where they're, they're looking at a specific buck. And I would say Matt Klein, Chad Sylvester, the Exodus guys, they're, they're looking at a lot like that. Those Mm -hmm. guys are really pinpointing a particular buck that they know extremely well and they have a lot of cameras out. Right. So, um, and they, they really get to know their deer and so we're us, I'm going into an area that we're finding six to eight stand locations spread out over two miles. And then we're using four to six cameras to put in key locations that complement all those six to eight stand locations to let us know the bucks that might be moving to that area. Um, last year we put our cameras out around October 20th. We checked when we went out to hunt about the 8th of November and we had at least one shooter on every camera hmm. in this particular area. And on one, one uh, camera, we had several. Right. And so it was, um, you know, really told us a lot. I mean, we were, we were so excited to go and hunt. Um, and, and private's a little bit different too. Mm-hmm. And I, I know at the beginning of the year, you know, you talk about public land. I start, you know, we're going to look at maps and aerial photos. Um, we've already done that for down in Ohio. Mm-hmm. So I need to get down there, um, probably this month or in August and we'll, mm-hmm. and I'll scout and I hope to see you there. And right. I think Matt and Chad might be there too. Right. But, um, um, so that's a little bit different. You know, we're looking at where deer should move. We're going to put cameras out to verify that, and then we're going to go and hunt because we don't know. Like, I, I know most of the bucks in my private land area, who shoots what bucks where, where they live in the summer, where they live in the fall. But something really different on private land is what we're doing differently in January. Instead of thinking about those movements and, and locations of public land to go hunt on private land, we're starting to inventory our bucks to make sure we don't miss anything. So using something like Deer Lab, we I like Deer Lab because um, I use it to categorize my box, name my box, and then at the same time to really get a hard inventory of what box made it through the season. And my camera is still running right now. We haven't even mm-hmm. taken most of them out of the woods yet. Mm-hmm. But um, um, so we start really looking at those deer heavily in the early part of the year, making sure that we have an in, have them inventoried. And you know, we and it's helped us to go back. We really look at a lot of younger box and say mm-hmm. that's that buck because when we're going to a specific stand, it's not on private land, we're going to a specific location, specific 
specific camera location, specific uh, um, sign location, we're expecting a certain buck to be there. Right. And so, and we know he's there because we watched him for two or three years, passed him up in that area. And, and so when we don't see that he's there, then, um, you know, that's, we really tend to avoid those areas until we see another buck there or until that buck shows up, right. um, because we don't want to spoil the area for one, you know, and over hunt it before right. he's even shows up. And then, um, but yeah, completely different. You know, it's more about that individual, um, public land is a little bit more opportunistic. Right. You mentioned the, the deer lab and the, in the, in the data and, and when you're running cameras, you know, regardless of it's public or private, you tend to come away with a lot of data to try to try to manage. Um, so I've, I've used, uh, uh, John's platform in the past with the, the deer lab stuff and it, and it's awesome. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a little bit of a, a tech nerd too. So the heat maps and stuff like that really kind yeah. of, uh, interests me, but how much are you looking at, you know, historical information versus your, you know, most recent intelligence, if you will? That's a great question because, um, to me, I'm, I'm a very simple person when it comes, it might seem very complex, but I'm very simple when it comes to you, you look at these bucks and when they're in this area, um, the only thing that I concern myself with then is where am I going to ambush them? Do I have stands already in the in the location to ambush them? And then I'm purely hunting the weather. So I hunt the same for every buck. You know, if, even when I'm going down to hunting public land in Ohio, um, last year I didn't plan to go down a second time. We were down there four and a half days. We had a close encounter with a really beautiful buck. And then uh, my partner, Rich, he missed one and spooked one. So we had, in four days, we had a lot of activity. And huge cold front that blew through after Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was over a 30 degree temperature drop winds that had been over 50 miles an hour. And I couldn't wait. I went down there, actually slept in the car, um, <laughs> out in the public land, and, you know, out in the woods and, and went out hunting at daybreak and, and on Monday, that Monday morning after Thanksgiving. And, um, I was purely down there only because of that cold front. I went in and, and hunted the buck that I wanted, was hoping to see. And, and he was there. Um, when I shot him, I didn't know it was that buck. I just knew it was a mature buck and he tried not to focus too many, you know, on, on the antlers and what he looks like. He's just mature, but, right. um, it was, right. it was, I was purely hunting that weather and that's what I do every other time. So if I know a buck is in a certain area, mm. he's using a certain movement and I believe he's betting here, traveling here or cruising here, then I want to put myself in position to harvest that buck at a time when I think he's going to be moving the most, which is going to be to me when there's that cooler, cold weather and, uh, and some looking for those certain weather features, um, and then going in and trying to harvest that buck. Right. So <clears throat> kind of keeping with the theme of, 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 data, and I know you like to keep it simple. Um, and I kind of prefer, prefer that approach. I'm also, I try to just give me enough, give myself enough information to make a decision. Cause I, I, I had a season where I really dove into a lot of the details or attempted to, and, uh, had, uh, analysis paralysis where it was every day I couldn't figure out which stand I wanted to go to. Um, oh so, yeah. You know, and so oh, yeah. I, I tried to cut down on how much I was looking at and just kind of make a gut instinct move. And that was what I did when I was in Ohio and had, and had success. So it really, that one hunt kind of started to change my perspective on how I approach things a little bit. Um, but say you have some data on a buck that you're targeting. How are you, how are you locating and defining what his core area is? And it might, this might 
I question might be tilted a little bit more toward public because you have probably a little less information that you would on private, but just curious of how you go to right. about defining core areas. Um, you know, one of the things if, <clears throat> excuse me, what I found with mature bucks is that they move a lot, especially during the, during the rut. And so whether it's private or public land, if you're in an area and let's say you're using a trail camera and you just cannot get a picture of that buck, um, during the daylight hours, not even close, you know, he's coming in at midnight, two, three, four in the morning. Um, then to me, what that's telling me is he's not just sitting 150 yards away or 300 yards away. And he sits there till the middle of the night and comes over and moves by the camera. It's telling me that he's coming from a long ways away. And so then, um, you know, is he going by another camera that is closer to daylight so I can tell where he's coming from? Um, what, what's the direction he's coming from? What's the sign telling me what's, what direction he's coming from? And where does it make sense that he might be during the day? And so I like to see those kind of pictures because then you can, um, you can look at that buck and define that, you know, he's from a half mile away or he's from a mile away or a mile and a half away. A lot of times you can look in that direction and say, wow, there's a really nice clear cut a mile away. I bet she's relating to that in some way. Um, but bottom line, you know, I go back to those core box. If you're getting pictures um, that are close to daylight or in daylight, and, and I'm talking, you know, within an hour of daylight, um, you know, hour after dark, um, then that tells you that buck is close. Right. And so that buck, that core buck, you know, even on public land, I look at it like I have an opportunity to harvest him potentially just about any time of the season. Mm-hmm. In fact, the one time I might not have a, a real defined time to, to hunt him, even though it's a good time to still hunt him, is during the middle of the rut. Right. Because is he now a half mile away or a mile away in someone else's you know, or area where he, he's been telling them, you know, he might, and that's what happens to a lot of those non-core bucks. You might get one or two pictures in October, um, even three or four, they're all middle of the night. Uh, maybe one or two in September. Well, he's trying to tell you, I'm not going to be there until the middle of the rut and, and potentially at time where I'm going to cruise. Whereas a core buck, he's trying to tell you that, Hey, I'm, I'm here and available right. <laughs> the entire season, just about. Right. And so you really make decisions on stands based on that too, to where, um, in public land, if, if, you know, I've had guys, I've, I've had neighbors, even there's bucks are getting pictures of close to and around dark and they're waiting until the rut to hunt them. Yeah. And, you know, here's a buck that they could potentially target in late September and October in Wisconsin. And they're waiting until the rut where that buck might be a mile away on someone else's property at that time. So really the timing of when those bucks come in on either private or public land is telling me when to hunt that stand and why. And of course, on public land, we're focusing on a lot of long range movement because mm-hmm. I want to put myself in a position where I potentially harvest uh, multiple, um, you know, mature bucks um, in a certain stand location. And and that being said, even with last year's buck in the, the and that's a really good stand location. But at the same time, um, just a little bit of advice that throw out there is that really you're you're favorite stand, your best stand should always be the next stand that you shoot a mature buck out of, not your last stand. You know, you have, if you, the shorter memory you have with stand locations, um, it really helps you whether it's on private or public land, let the sign tell you when to hunt, let trail cameras, rub scrapes, whatever it might be. Once you know that buck's in there, then again, it boils down to weather for me. And I, I try to go in and hunt on that. Right. So it's interesting you're talking about long distance movement because that was really what helped me put the puzzle pieces together on lucky or what I think I've put the puzzle pieces together. I'm not going to, you know, be too uh, presumptuous here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was getting him, you know, around, uh, he showed up last year on the farm 
uh, about this time, I think I got a good, a good picture of him in daylight and only one though. And he disappeared. I never saw him again, you know, on another camera until October 19th, he showed up on this crick bottom, which okay. is borders our neighbor. There's a, a stream that kind of runs around the border of our entire property on the, I guess it's the North side. Um, and, uh, I saw him there on the 19th on camera and then I saw him again on the 20th on camera on this. It's a historical scrape, uh, scrape site that shows up every year. And then I just a little ways up from there when I was hunting late season this year, I sat this hollow between there was a food source 50 yards behind me on this point, uh, that I put in that was uh, a bunch of turnips and stuff. And then further up the hollow, you know, uh, I guess be on the right hand side of that hollow was a five acre clover plot. And, so I, that's where I saw him on the hoof was where he basically had to make a decision at that pinch point of the hollow, whether he was going to go to the one food source or the one further up. And, uh, mm-hmm. so I kind of then decided, I was like, well, based on the time that I saw him, because it was, you know, late season. So it was about right before dark. So it was probably about four thirty. Uh, and where I got the camera pictures of him from in the direction he was walking, he was coming onto the property. So I was like, he has to be betting over on the Crick bottom on the, on the neighbor's property. So in order for me to get him or to have an opportunity to harvest him, I'm going to have to sit right at that one pinch point at the corner of it where he has to make his decision. Cause if I sit too far up, I'm never going to see him before, before, uh, before dark. So mm-hmm. I started putting those pieces yeah, together that's... as to what time he was showing up on different cameras as to where, you know, and I just kind of backtracked from there where I thought he was at. So, yeah. And that's, uh, that's boy, that's, and to me, that's a lot of fun Yeah, because you're, yeah, you're analyzing when he's coming in and, and, you know, again, it goes back to like, you know, obviously he's not trying to tell you, but he is, you know, he's telling you, yeah. I've hunted bucks um, that have given me five cam photos over a two to three year period. And, but, and it's not that they're coming in at a certain date, they're coming in at a certain phase. Mm-hmm. And so they're non core bucks coming in the center of the rut. And basically you have a chance to shoot those bucks during um, the, uh, the peak of the rot or maybe opening day gun season, maybe even possibly over late season food source, mm-hmm. but it doesn't take a lot of trail cam photos to tell you that this is not a, a buck that I should be hunting in late September and early October, mid October. And a lot of those bucks that have successfully harvested that have lived on someone else's property, mm-hmm. um, you know, mile away, three quarters of a mile away have been on, uh, out of stands or blind locations that, um, it was basically that blind or that stand was set up for that buck and that stand was not used until you went in to try to harvest that buck. And so I didn't want to spook the area. I didn't want to spook the does in the area, spook the young bucks, because then that area gets established as a stressful area to the deer herd. They avoid it or they avoid it during the daylight. Um, they have some negative reactions to it. And it doesn't take many negative reactions um, by other deer for mature buck to uh to take those visual cues and, um, and really relate to that in a, in a negative manner too. Right. So, so kind of speaking of, you know, how they, when, what time of the year they're going to be on a property or, or be, you know, huntable, if you will, you know, kind of reading the sign and determining what that best time is to kind of go in after them. You know, how do you manage following, if you have a particular buck that you're targeting, uh, how do you manage following them across like the food, you know, changes throughout the year, the biological demands that occur throughout the hunting season that can cause them to shift their quarry areas or, you know, or at least at minimum, they begin to broaden their home range, say like when, when the rut happened or when rut kicks in, they're going to start really, you know, putting on some miles. How do you manage, you know, kind of determining when and where the best time is for a particular buck when all those changes are happening? There's, um, 
Yeah, it's. I like that question a lot because there there is a difference between public and private land. Yeah, private land. Um, I guess to look at public land. I know we're going to talk a little bit more about private land later. Mm-hmm. Um, but public land, you know, it's interesting. A lot of the a lot of my favorite areas on public land, whether it's been in Michigan and um, you know the UP of Michigan or Southern Michigan, um, and then Ohio um, and Pennsylvania. A lot of those areas that I've hunted were only active during the first few days of gun season, but then especially during the rut. And I can look at cameras that we've left there um, that would have been there in August and September, early October, um, December, late December and January, especially on public land. We're just not getting those buck pictures. However, we're getting a lot of buck pictures during um, the peak of the rut and um, and even in the post rut, when those big mature bucks are still cruising, they still don't want to give up the game, and mm-hmm. and they're they're moving long distances. So, um, we're on private land, um, a lot different because I look at it like if a private land is managed, and you're looking at controlling that afternoon food source movement for the entire season, meaning that you have just enough food to make it through the entire season, then you could potentially hold a captive deer herd and the bucks that go along with it for the majority of the season. Um, keying on your food sources during the daylight and then they leave and travel to who knows where after dark. So you're only looking on private land, typically controlling two to 400 yards of movement. Um, where I'm, and so, and, and that can take place in December. It can take place in, in the early season. Of course, you're waiting for those bucks to shift on to your property sometimes because it's more fall habitat food. Right. Whereas in public land, you're looking for those long range cruising opportunities. Um, you know, the big, nice benches um, or saddles across a steep ridge face uh, between two clear cuts. And those clear cuts might be a half mile in either direction. You know, you're hunting big movements, right. um, but you're putting yourself in a position to where. The rest of the year, that buck might relate to his individual clear-cut area. He's only moving two, three, four hundred yards during the day. He's trying to conserve energy. He's either growing in the in the warm season or he's conserving his uh, energy during the winter time. He's really not moving a lot, but and that's why you just don't get those pictures during the during any other time but that you know month during the rut or that five or six weeks. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting because there's there's a couple clear cuts that I've been kind of scoping on a piece of public land, <clears throat> and there's a I think you've just sold me. I think I'm going to have to d- dive into it this year. <laughs> it's it's actually it's more actually work, more work. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It's it, it's near our good farm. Work, good work, good work. Yeah, it's good work. It's good work. But uh, it's yeah. I've been eyeing it, and it just looks it just looks like a good spot. And it's public land near our farm, actually. Um, which some people might think that would be crazy that I would go hunt, you know, public land possibly that would be near private land that I'm you know working to manage and stuff, but. I just, it's just one of those places that I see that I just have a really good feeling about. And I did scout the public around that particular area. I just didn't make it to that spot this year. And I saw some really good, uh, I saw some really good sign. You know, I saw some stuff that was really um, telling me that I should hang a stand in there this year. But I wanted to ask you, you know, when you've kind of started putting the puzzle pieces together on a target buck that you've identified and you have some intel on him. You know, I, I've I've talked to different you know different fellows, um, you know, have different approaches, and I'm just curious to what yours is. Some guys, you know, once they kind of get on a deer, they're really gonna look to hunt his a buck, you know, specifically. They're gonna really look to hunt his bedding, you know, and that's really the only opportunity they're going to look for. You know, I'm I'm just curious, are you are you looking for the bedding like where his buck bed is and going to hunt him from that perspective, or are you looking for other you know? topographical you know features that 
that you can utilize as well. I'm just curious on what type of things you kind of hone in on, if it's betting or if it's a pinch point. I know you mentioned saddles and benches and so forth, but if you kind of if you could have your cake and eat it too, what would be your preference? Um, all of it. And the reason <laughs> I say that is, I'm looking at what I'm looking at is um, I'm trying to assign a value to every set that I have, mm-hmm. and so. Um, last year, the Diego buck, I hunted eight times on that, on that farm, on that property, um, out of seven different stands. And we had them within bow range three times and they were completely different stands, you know, locations. And, um, and there's, there's a couple things I look at and it goes back to, um, and it just bring up real quick, you know, a guy will say, okay, I'm going out and sitting in the stand all day. There are, I would say, less than 10% of all stand locations are appropriate for an all-day sit. And the reason I say that is because if they're back at that bedding area, which is my favorite area to hunt a mature buck, I would say, um, I think it's still about 70% of my bucks. Last year, Diego um, was one, you know, another one, um, even the buck down in Ohio. You know, I'm going into a stand, and I'm going there in the morning with that cold front, and that can often be the perfect scenario um, to shoot that buck, you know, it's near his bedding area. It's in a cruising spot, but then the closer it gets to dark, those deer, those bucks are moving towards food. And so that 10 out of 10 sit that you had in the morning, that 10 out of 10 sit that you might've had during cruising time in the middle of the day is now a one or two out of 10 time because all the deer are leaving your location. And in, in the closer you get to dark, the less likely you are to see deer. Mm-hmm. And so you have to have stands that relate to, especially when you're going after a specific target back buck, especially when it's on private land. Um, you have to have stands that relate to food, to relate to cruising, and then relate to backside of um, bedding area in the morning where you're trying to get in during the pre-rut and rut and waiting for that buck to come back to you while you're on the downwind side of his, his bedding area. And it might be that you're 100 yards away from where you think he's bedding or 200 yards. But bottom line, you're in a safe area where you can just pick away at him. And whether you're picking away at him in the morning um, or cruising time during the midday or that evening stand on his way to food, you're taking safe, educated approaches where you think he's moving in this pattern and you're either hunting him on the backside of a bedding area in the morning, you're hunting him in a food source movement in the evening, and then hopefully that backside of bedding area or the evening food source relates to some type of cruising so that you can actually, you know, have that three value day where you can look at, I hunted a 10 out of 10, you know, for the three portions of the day. So you get a 30 out of 30 or 28 out of 30. And I literally look at it that way. I look at it like I'm sitting in this, in this stand and it's getting closer to dark and this is a one out of 10. I'm not going to see anything in this last half hour, 45 minutes. And, uh, and that frustrates me. I don't want to put myself in that position because I've already decided that because of the weather and the factors that I look for, that's a, that's a seven, eight or nine or 10 out of 10 day because of the weather. So I've already waited for this opportunity to come. I don't want to waste my values per set and, and whether it's, you know, those three locations. So my, my favorite is, you know, I think the bucks, they move a lot more in the morning than they do in the afternoon. Um, I think as relate, I think it relates to colder temperatures, but at the same time, I put a high priority on those morning stands, but I shot some nice bucks in the evening too. Mm-hmm. And, and so you always have to have, you know, all those options open. And then, you know, again, going back to what's, what's your favorite stand to shoot out of or your opportunity to harvest a buck. And, and I look at it like it's the next stand that I, that I potentially uh, get lucky and have them go by. Right. So when you say morning, so, when you say morning sits, are you, do you, 
are you referring to mornings in October? Because I know a lot of guys just don't get into a stand in in the morning, you know, during October until you hit maybe that last week of October. Do you follow that same rule of thumb, or do you do? Are you more basing it on what you're seeing? I, you know, there's there's a low, a much lower probability that you're going to see a buck in the early season in the morning. But at the same time, those first few days of the season where you know a buck is potentially going back to a certain location to bed, a certain point, a certain bedding area, and you have stands available, and you have that cool, crisp morning where you think that you might not be there um, when when you show up and when you want to get in that morning. And I'm thinking areas that might be a quarter mile back off an ag field um, right. where you know the deer's been feeding out there every night. He's got a long ways to get back to that location, and I think there's some opportunities there. And I've harvested some bucks, you know, around the, you know, the early part of the season, October 12th, um, you know, in that time frame. But at the same time, um, I do, you know, I still look at that, that evening set during the early season, mid-October, the October lull, those October cold fronts, and even into December, too, when you're looking at muzzleloader time and late bow, um, there's such a premium to place on evening sets. Um, I'm not going to potentially sit any morning sit that relates to the movement I'm watching a specific buck in um, it, that might impact or negatively influence the evening premium sit for that same buck, that same movement. So if I can go to another property and I think, you know, I, this makes sense that a buck might be moving here during the morning, um, then I'll go take that opportunity, but not if it's going to erase out or cancel out an evening set that, that has a higher value assigned to it. Right. So do you hunt any, do you, do you hunt more aggressively? Would you say when you're hunting public land versus private land, or do you typically take the same, you know, a similar, you know, I guess measured approach to both? I I would say I'm hunting more aggressively on public land just for the fact that um, our stand locations are limited. Mm -hmm. We have, you know, instead of having um, potentially, you know, 21 or 24 stands and three properties that are that are that each have their own good time of the year and and depending on the buck that's around there you know we might have six or eight sand locations that we're keying on and, and we're seeing that three are really hot and i have a potential to hunt those more um continuous uh you know on public land where we're just looking for long-range cruisers and if we didn't spook them already, then there's a good chance of seeing them or another buck that might come through those same circumstances and same set of conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that way, I would say a lot more aggressive. Um, but still, I'm trying to place, you know, scent control is tough on public land. And where we hunt in the hills in Wisconsin, there's areas that it takes me 50 minutes to get to a stand on private on a private land 40. Wow. So you're going up the side of one ridge, or you're going up 400 feet in elevation, and then you're going over a quarter mile. It's it's a long ways in. Our average walk in is probably about twenty five minutes, twenty minutes somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Um, but so scent is always concerned. But to me, whether it's on public land or private land, your your best defense against scent is is actually your stand location. Mm-hmm. So once you get into your stand location, if you're allowing your scent to blow into open hardwoods, a marsh, a steep cliff, um, then your scent is effectively covered up. Um, no matter how much you stink or sweat it up to get in there. Right. So, um, so that being said, you know, I still, we still try to control our scent. We spray down our legs, everything to get in there. Yeah. But using a stand more would be, you know, a lot more aggressive on public land. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, the, 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 the sweat factor is a hard one to, to, to combat. It's, it's, 
I, I know people have gotten a pretty good shock in the morning driving down the road, seeing me standing in the back of my truck, half naked, getting dressed to try to keep <laughs> for my sake control. <laughs> yeah, you and I both, you know, yeah. And it's you know, I'm walking uh, in basically just base layers, you know, all the all the way in, trying to you know, it's <laughs> then I'm carrying more stuff. It's always the the inner battle is always how much do I want to carry versus how much do I want to wear, um, you know, and how much can right. I get away with? <laughs> yeah, know, that's where you know, wearing some good stuff, you know, uh, good layering clothes, you know, like you know the stuff Sitka Sitka is making and stuff like that really does a number in terms. Oh of yeah, being it's, able to it's incredible. Yeah, being able to layer up appropriately to try to minimize that as much as possible, but. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I want to thank Jeff for joining us, and be sure to head over to whitetailhabitatsolutions.com or follow him on Instagram and Facebook, and just check out all the content he and his team are creating. They're doing a great job of creating blog posts and and a ton of video content on his site. I'll place all the links uh, in the blog post show notes for all of his digital properties. Uh, Also, be sure to check out the upcoming episode, episode 30, as that episode will be the part two of this podcast where Jeff will be covering what type of habitat and land management strategies you can possibly implement on property that you either own or that you lease or that you have access to for growing and targeting mature bucks. Also, want to make sure to thank all of you for hanging out with us today for an hour plus, uh, and be sure to hit the iTunes subscribe button so you don't miss any of the great upcoming guests that we have. And if you haven't already, give us a like and uh, follow along on our daily whitetail journey on the Truth From The Stand Instagram and Facebook pages. And if you'd like to get involved in the show and uh, have us or a guest answer your questions, or if you'd just like to recommend a topic for us to discuss, uh, email me your suggestions at truthfromthestand at gmail.com, or click the email button on our Instagram account and leave us a message. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, I need to give a big shout out to our partners that continue to make this podcast possible. Whitetail Institute of North America, Exodus Outdoor Gear, and Lone Wolf Portable Tree Stands. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.